Welcome, everybody. So everybody have a gray handout? Gray handout. If you don't have a gray handout, there's one on the back. And you need it. If you're going to be here, you're going to need it because it will, it's too wordy. It, you can, it, you, you, 90 percent of what I'm going to say is on this handout, so that'll really help. So if you've got to have a gray handout there. Okay. So we have welcomed everybody. Welcomed everybody here. Good to see y'all. And welcome to those who are watching uh, online, uh, either live or delayed or by transcription, as they used to say. Um, we've been looking at the passage, and if you want to turn there, Colossians 2, verses 8 through 23. And some of us are going to read our normal passage that we read from Colossians 2, verses 8 through 23. And we'll do that in just a minute after our prayer. We've been looking at four warnings that Paul has given to the Colossians, and they're right at the top of your handout. Paul's warnings against heresy. There are four warnings. One, false philosophy. Two, legalism. And number three, angel worship. And number four, asceticism. Asceticism is an extreme form of um, trying to suppress the body physically by beating yourself with chains or whips or sticking in, laying on a bed of nails. And it's usually associated with uh, uh, monasticism where people go off by themselves and try to be completely separate from everything to suppress the flesh. But others do it. Uh, it's associated with works. It's severe, it's harsh, and it's harmful to the body. People climbing up the steps on their knees of the cathedrals overseas, that type thing. That's, that's asceticism. All of those things were things that were being used back in the time of the Colossians and now to replace and in lieu of the Lord Jesus Christ. The false teacher would say, well, you don't need Christ. You need these things. Keep the law. Look at this philosophy. This is a great philosophy. Uh, angel worship. Uh, Hebrews were prone to angel. The Jewish people were prone to angel worship and so forth. So these things were replacing Christ, but they weren't, people weren't complete. It, 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 those things weren't sufficient. Those things had no help in making you and cleansing you and forgiving you and providing for your salvation. So that's what we've been looking at. We've been, we started at verse 8. We're down to, uh, we're on verse 14. So I'm going to review everything plus 13 quickly and then try to get into 14 and 15 and finish that off. Uh, we have some great things to talk about today. Um, and we are, if you look down at the bottom of the page, we've been looking at three things Christ has done for us that show or substantiate his sufficiency and that we are complete in him. That word is full, and Paul is using that word pleroma in Greek, which means full or complete, and he's using that word that was used by the heretics, the false teachers, especially the ones talking to Coloss the Colossians, and trying to tell them, if you want to be full, you need to get this fullness that's from our philosophy and our, their hierarchy of, of uh, beliefs that they have established. 
that no one can understand. It's incredible. In the past, I've told you about it. I went and tried to look and see what the Gnostics believe, which is what we think that heresy is. They're called the knowing ones. I would like to call them the unknowing ones because they didn't, just didn't seem to have a clue. I couldn't figure it out. It was so ethereal. Um, it was amazing. So the Pleroma, Paul takes that very same word and says, you're complete in Christ. You don't need all this other stuff. So... Um, one of the great verses in Scripture, in verse 15, is talking about, uh, that's the third area that shows that what Christ has done for us and substantiates his sufficiency and shows that we're complete in him, is our victory over the, what his victory over the forces of evil in verse 15. We're going to read that in just a minute. So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll read the Scriptures and start our lesson. Father, thank you so much for each person here today. Thank you for each family represented. I pray, Father, that you would be with us. These are such wonderful passage of Scripture, and all of it is wonderful. But, Father, this addresses who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us and the victory that he's had over sin, death, and the grave and Satan and all of the principalities and powers. Pray, Father, that you would truly impress upon us the magnitude of what you've done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection. I pray, Father, you'd be with all those that are home, that are ill, that are in pain, that are hurting. I pray that you would comfort and heal. I pray for those that are hurting spiritually and um, intellectually and emotionally pray, Father, that you would be with them, provide your encouragement, your guidance, and your, your calm comfort. Uh, I pray that you would uh, be with uh, the other classes that are meeting, that you would bless them in their time of study of God's Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we want to read uh, ch uh, chapter 2, verse 8. If you haven't turned there, please turn there now. And uh, Steve was going to start off by reading Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men and after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead boldly, boldly, bodily, pardon me. Uh, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Thank you. And now... Uh, Chuck is going to read 11 and 12. In whom also you are circumcised with circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And verses 13 through 15, Connie. And so that was the warning against philosophy. Next, the warning on legalism, 16 and 17. Cheryl. 
man therefore judge you in the in meat or in drink or in respect of the holy day or of the new moon or of the sabbath days which are the shadows of things to come but the body is of Christ and then angel worship 18 and 19 and that's uh, Nancy And verse uh, 20 uh, through 23 is asceticism, surely. Thank you, and I apologize for using the wrong name. <laughs> um, the flesh is weak, and part of that is the brain. So sorry. Okay. So um, we started off, and I, I've already told you, and I want to move fairly fast here, and uh, we saw the warning against philosophy, be lest any man spoil you, that Remember we talked about that means to take you kidnapped like a pirate would come and carry you off as treasure or booty. And through philosophy, the only use of the word in the New Testament, and that word spoil is the only use of that word in the New Testament, and vain deceit or empty trickery. Uh, or, so the, the, they, the false teachers would come and try to deceive people into accepting something other than Christ. And the basic and basis and the foundation of this warning is the supremacy of Christ in verse 9, uh, where he says that, for in him, that is in Christ, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And that's an extension of chapter 1, verse 19, where he says, for it pleases the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. Again, there's that word fullness, the complete. Completeness. He's, he is fully God. And then uh, the supremacy in deity, verse 9 and verse 10 through 15, talks about the foundation being of the warnings being Christ's sufficiency and humanity. By sufficiency, we mean he is perfectly, completely capable of doing what he said he was going to do. And uh, then I came up with that uh, saying from F.F. F. Bruce, the Bible scholar, who said, Christ is all and all you need. Uh, and that this is actually, it's a short thing, but it's significant because um, Christ is all we need for our spiritual and every other need. 
And he gives us all the resources to do that. And we're complete in him, as verse 10 says. And you're completed in him. He's the head of all principality and power. We're complete in him. Um, the This is a significant issue, as I started to say, because we say, well, Christ is all I need, but I, I need to do this also. And people think that the primary thought is people need to do some type of something to balance the scale to go to heaven. I, I got more good than bad, so I must be going to heaven. If you ask ninety-nine, if you ask a hundred people, probably ninety-eight of them would say, "Well, I my good outweighs the bad." But it does not. If you broke the law, you you're you know all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You're going to eternal condemnation, and it is Christ that's the answer to our need. And so. Christ is all and all that we need. And there are three affirming statements in verses 9 and 10, which again uh, talk about Christ as supreme and sufficient and form the basis of the foundation for his warning. The deity of Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. And then number two there, right in the middle of page one, the real humanity of Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, bodily. So he had a fleshly body. And we know that Christ is 100% man, 100% God. He's fully human, fully divine. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. And then the sufficiency of Christ. This is where all cults attack either the deity of Christ or his sufficiency. Um, they say, well, he, he, we, you need something else besides Christ. And that's not true. And ye are complete, that's that same word, you are full in him who is the head of all principality and power. We're made full and complete as we share his fullness in him, in union with him. And that's on your handout. Christ's all-sufficiency is sown by the statement that he is the head of all principality and power. That there's three things Christ has done for us and that, uh, and that he uses to substantiate, prove, show, demonstrate his sufficiency and that we're complete in him. Spiritual circumcision, verse 11 and 12. We'll look at that in just a second. That's salvation. Forgiveness of sins, verses 13 and 14. I'm looking on number two, the very last list on the bottom of page one. Forgiveness of sins. We have sins forgiven. Christ was, God has forgiven our sins through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And then victory over the forces of evil in verse 15, as I mentioned earlier. So spiritual circumcision, Paul used spiritual circumcision. Uh, and it, you see number one there, verse 11, 12. In whom you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of sins of the flesh, of the circumcision of Christ. And then it's done in him. It's in Christ, in union with Christ. You're joined or connected to him. And this is part of salvation. Uh, number two, top of the page, item B, the circumcision made without hands. This is uh, Paul spiritually connecting. He's contrasting the Christian's salvation, spiritual circumcision by Christ and salvation with the physical circumcision that existed during the Mosaic law that they used to show as a sign of the covenant. Now it's being falsely mandated 
by these false teachers. They say, you need to go back to the law. The Judaizers said the same thing. And this uh, physical circumcision was done by a man's hands on an external organ of the body. In contrast, Christ's circumcision is spiritual and not made by hands. It's not physical. And it relates to the inner spiritual man as expressed in Philippians 3.3 as circumcision of the heart. So spiritual circumcision is, to quote MacArthur, cleansing of sin that comes by faith in God, salvation. And then also there's a putting off of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ because of our salvation. The sins of the flesh were put off. There's a removal of power of the flesh because uh, as a result of salvation, we're a new creation. We have a new nature. There's a new nature. And old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to stop there and say, you notice the Holy Spirit is hardly ever mentioned in this, these, this book. It's because he's focusing on Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit does a lot of these things, but they're not, he's not mentioned because Paul wants to focus on Christ. So through the, through the new nature, back to our subject, uh, and our new creation in Christ, we are now able to serve him. Before, when we had the old nature and we were dead in our sins and trespasses, there's nothing we could do that would please God because we were operating out of the old nature. And now we've been made a new creation. We have a new nature and we're freed from the necessity of the obligation to sin. We can now serve him. So uh, number D, uh, that passage goes on to say, buried with him in baptism, verse 12, wherein also you're risen with him, through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So the emphasis is on the new birth and the sufficiency of Christ and being made complete with him and is contrasted with the old sinful nature without Christ taught by the heretics. Baptism is the external outward sign of what Christ has done for us inwardly through salvation. Baptism is not <laughs> related the circumcision of the Old Testament. Baptism pictures Christ's death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. The act of baptism does not save. Forgiveness of sins. Now, this is the second thing in that list on the bottom of page one that Paul is uh, showing us that Christ has done for us that substantiate or demonstrate or show his sufficiency and that we are complete in him. So, and you, verse 13, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. So A, in Christ we have forgiveness of all sins. And the verse continues the thought uh, as we go on through verse 12 that God raised Christ from the dead. He also raised us with Christ. We were dead in our sins, but now as believers through faith in Christ, God raised us with Christ. In Christ, we share his bodily resurrection spiritually. MacArthur said, only through union with Jesus Christ can those helplessly dead in their sins receive eternal life. 
the resurrection of Christ uh, also parenthetically here. That means this isn't directly related to the previous stuff off subject. Christ is considered the first fruits of those who sleep in death. And this is a pledge of their resurrection. Uh, Vaughn said that. So we will also receive a bodily resurrection in the end times. Paul taught that in the future life and heaven will be with him with a glorified body. And that's a continuation of the spiritual life we have now. And Christ made all of that possible by salvation. So going back to the subject, but before we do, I want to read that quote. I don't often repeat quotes, but this is a short one. And it's actually um, very, it's a Erdman and it's his summary of this um, passage here. He says, this gift of a new life is associated by Paul with another act on the part of God. A gracious bestowal accepted by faith, namely, so the thing that's bestowed is a forgiveness of sins. Quote, having forgiven all our trespasses, end quote. The pronoun here is changed from you to us. I don't know if you noticed that. Paul thus gracefully associates himself with his readers. He gratefully acknowledges his need and the pardoning grace of God. Such pardon was necessary. All had been under condemnation against Jew and Gentile alike. There was a bond, a note unpaid, an obligation unfulfilled. Remember that. This bond was the law of God, chiefly the law embodied in the Ten Commandments. This bond Christ canceled by his atoning death, having blotted out the bond written in ordinances, the law that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he had taken it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So, think we were at sea dead in your sins and the uncircumcision means our spiritual condition is that we were dead in our sins and uncircumcision and I'll talk about what uncircumcision is in just a second the word for sins here uh, trespass means a falling beside or a false step and it indicates our failure to follow the path of righteousness ordained by God and we deviated from the way of righteousness and truth Uncircumcision means spiritually those who are not saved, as shown in Acts 7.51, we read last time. And you, item D there, towards the bottom of page 2, and you hath he quickened together with him. Verse 13, Paul emphatically states that they were made alive together with Christ at the time of their conversion. He emphasizes their participation in his resurrection in Ephesians 2.5. This does not mean that Christ and believers were quickened in the same manner. Remember, he was the son of God. Uh, and so he was, he was, it was not the same manner. Instead, it expresses that we had fellowship with him, that new life is now made possible by Christ. And believers shared it with him. And then item, item paragraph E having forgiven you all your trespasses, means that God, at the same time he quickened us, made us alive, he forgave us in our conversion. That, that's uh, for the experience of forgiveness is simultaneous with quickening. 
uh, Dr. Vaughn, Curtis Vaughn. Forgiveness and quickening, in fact, are the same act of divine grace viewed under a different but complementary aspect or view. If you look from one side of the coin, essentially, you see being made alive. If you look from the other side of the coin, you see forgiveness. Uh, that was written by Bear. So the word forgiven here, and I just found this fascinating when I first found this. The word forgiven here is the same root word as grace. That's C-H-A-R-I-S. And it means to grant a favor of kindness, to forgive freely, and to grant forgiveness, or to forgive freely. So divine grace is a foundational principle at work here for forgiveness. And the words are even the same. I, always, I found that striking. Forgiveness, MacArthur, this is one of his best quotes, forgiveness of guilty sinners who put their trust in Jesus Christ is the most important reality in Scripture. Let's turn to the top of page 3 for verse 14. Now, who could think of a song... Uh, this verse starts with blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Who can think of a hymn about blotting? Did I read that hymn last time? Okay, I did. There's a hymn uh, called uh, My Sins Are Blotted Out I Know. And I'll just read the first verse. What a, and the chorus. What a wondrous message. In God's word, my sins are blotted out. I know, exclamation point. If I trust in his redeeming blood, my sins are blotted out. I know. My sins are blotted out. I know. My sins are blotted out. I know. They are buried in the depths of the deepest sea. My sins are blotted out. I know. And so that's, that's a great cry of victory. Um, so this verse expands our understanding of forgiveness and describes what it means and how it was accomplished. Having blotted out, and we talked about this last time, means having canceled. The act by which forgiveness is completed is literally that it was wiped out or wiped away. And uh, we looked at Acts, uh, we looked at this word in Acts 3.19 and Revelation 3.5. The word to blot out is a compound word in the original language in Greek. It means out and to wipe. So it was used for abolishing a law or canceling a law. It means to wipe out, wipe away. No, H. Um, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. In verse 14, handwriting was used of a document written by hand, and there are three views of this. And this is, you be the theologian. I don't have any music to play like they play, you know, on the quiz show. You be the theologian. Okay. So what was Paul trying to say? All of these things really are true but if we believe that the Bible is inspired in the original language and the original words were inspired by God, what was Paul trying to say? What did he intend to say? What metaphor was he trying to use? The first view is that 
this meant an indictment, a, a statement of, of, of uh, bringing charges. An indictment was written against a prisoner accusing him of offenses. And a, a scholar named Scott wrote that, believes that. A self, number two, self-confessed indictment um, or charge list to which the accused has admitted and signed their name. Barclay believed that, and that view is reflected by Phillips. It said, Christ has utterly wiped out the condemning evidence of broken laws and commandments. And then number three, a handwritten note or bond of indebtedness signed a signed confession of debt. F.F. Bruce believes that, and that view is also reflected by Goodspeed, who wrote, he canceled the bond which stood against us. Any, how many of you believe number one's right? Okay, how many of you believe number two is right? Okay, so I need to see everybody's hand on number three. <laughs> how many believe number three is right? Okay, I, I, I think that's the closest to what the, the Lord was, was wanting to be said uh, based on the translation and the words. And uh, I would, I would I, I, you know, certainly all the others are true. But what was Paul trying to say right then and there? I think he was trying to say number three, uh, a handwritten note or bond of indebtedness, a signed confession of debt. We, we had a debt we could not, uh, you heard that, debt we uh, could not pay. And um, he paid a debt I, I, I could not pay and a debt I could not owe. You, you remember, I can't say that saying now. Anyway, scratch that from, take that out of the video, okay? <laughs> That's a joke. I was kidding, folks. Okay. So the reference here is to the Mosaic Law. There are three descriptions used of the law. Ordinances, it was written commandments contained in ordinances. Ephesians 2.15 gives us that, where he says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's Paul's description of the law. For to make himself of twain, that's two, one new man, so making peace. He's, the context there is bringing the Jew and Gentile together in Christ. Okay? So, so ordinances were written commandments. There's a written code of regulations and requirements that was against us. God's law had a valid claim against us in that we had failed it and it condemns us and shows us guilty. So the law was a set of regulations and ordinances they were against us because we were guilty. We could not keep them. And we had a valid claim against us. And then number three, it was contrary to us. The law also stood directly in opposition to us. It was our enemy. Since we could not meet its requirements, it was hostile to us because we could not keep it. And it could not help us keep it. So the law justly stands in opposition to us, accuses us, and declares us guilty before God. And Paul says, God took it out of the way, or Christ took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Uh, Paul says that God canceled the bond against us, the law, and took it away, nailing it to his cross, took it, means it has been removed permanently so its claims can never alienate us from God. 
quoting Vaughn, Phillips renders it has has renders it has completely annulled, and this is the same word used in John one twenty nine where he says, "Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world." Okay, now I want to stop there and share a quote from uh, J. Vernon McGee, and he's going to talk about that in his uh, Southern style and uh, down home Southern language. Yes. He says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, this old flesh of ours has been condemned. When Christ died, he died for you and me. He paid the penalty for our sin. When the Lord Jesus died, they wrote above him, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He was being publicly executed on the grounds he had led in a rebellion. This was, of course, not true, but that was a charge against him. When the people standing there read that sign, they understood that he had been disloyal to Caesar and had made himself, in their eyes, to be a king. And to them, that was the reason he was dying on the cross. But when God looked on that cross, he saw an altar on which the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world was offered. God saw another inscription there high above the inscription that man had written, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Why did, what did God write on that cross? He wrote the ordinances. He wrote the Ten Commandments. He wrote a law which I cannot keep, ordinances of which I am guilty of breaking. When Christ died there on the cross, he did not die because he broke the law. He was sinless. But it was because I broke the law, because I'm a sinner, and because you are. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, my friend, if God has saved you and raised you from the dead and joined you to a living Christ, why should you go back to a law you couldn't keep in the first place? See, the Judaizers and the Gnostics and other heretics were wanting to go back to the law. Why should you go back to the law if you couldn't keep it in the first place? You can't even keep the law today in your own power, and your own strength. You see, the law was given to discipline the old nature, but now the believer is given a new nature, and the law has been removed as a way of life. Okay. Now, I'm in the middle of the center of the page, right after, Behold the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Nailing is how God removed the bond against us, and it reflects the permanence of the removal. Remember, he nailed that to the, to the cross. And I thought of the permanence nailing a coffin. That's pretty permanent. Nail a coffin shut. Um, it's the only use of this word in the New Testament. Again, when he uses a word and it's the only use, it usually means some special concept that he is truly bringing a special word or employing a word that he's put together, compound word, to reflect a more uh, stronger sense of the meaning. 
So, most often the Romans nail the charges, as uh, McGee said, J. Vernon McGee said, they nail the charges above the offenders of the cross or whatever instrument of death they were being offered on. Um, and they were, when they were crucified, they nailed it on the cross. This emphasized the power and authority and standards of the Roman government. Nailing it to his cross is a metaphor by which Paul demonstrates Christ satisfied the indictment of the law against us, the Ten Commandments, and God set it aside when Christ died on the cross in our place. Paul sees a superscription, uh, a, uh, a, a, a banner of, of words nailed above Christ containing the bond, our own indictment, the law. He sees the law up there that condemns us we broke every one of the Ten Commandments. In place of actual words, the king, those words, the king of the Jews, that's what the Lord Jesus, that's what God saw. When Christ was crucified, God nailed the law to his cross. Peak. Okay. Now, I want to share a quote from Ironside, who kind of shares, he overlaps a little bit, but I think it's worth reading. I'm going to make a point here pretty soon about the law and uh, it's a fine point so I want you to sharpen your listening skills here it's towards the end of the lesson but I want you to listen carefully one more page Uh, Harry Ironside, H.A. Ironside says, Moreover, the bond that was against us, the handwriting, a term which could only be properly used to the Ten Commandments, which we were distinctly told were the handwriting of God embraced in ten ordinances or divinely given rules because of the sinfulness of our nature making our disobedience to the law when once it came to our knowledge of foregone conclusion and which therefore made it to us a ministration uh, a notice or a facility of death and condemnation that now the law has been taken out of the way and no longer hangs over us as an unfulfilled obligation Christ nailed it to his cross now I like the fact he says the handwriting well you know the Lord uh, put the the law in the tablets of stone at the beginning. So I thought that's a good, a good uh, point. What do we understand by this expression, nailing it to his cross that we just discussed here? It may help us we remember that it was customary under Roman law that criminals were executed by crucifixion, hanging or impalement. They wrote out a copy of the law they had broken or to indicate the nature of their offense, they put it on a placard and nailed it above the victim's head so that all might know how Rome executed vengeance on those who violated their criminal code. Pilate wrote out the inscription to be placed over the head of Christ Jesus, and that in three languages, uh, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, all might know why the patient sufferer from Galilee was publicly executed. This Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, this is, that's what it said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
As the people read this, as we, we, we talked about before, they understood that he was being crucified because he made himself a king and was thus disloyal to Caesar. That was the accusation, but it wasn't true. But as God looked on that cross, his holy eye saw, as it were, another inscription altogether. Nailed upon the cross above the head of his blessed son was a handwriting of ten ordinances given at Sinai. It was because this law had been broken in every point that Jesus poured out his blood, thus giving his life to redeem us from the curse of the law. And so all of our sins have been settled for. There the law, which we had so dishonored, had been, has been magnified to the full in the satisfaction which Christ made to divine justice. Thus, he says, Christ became the end of the law to everyone that believeth. Now he's quoting a verse, uh, Romans 10, 4, which says, Brethren, um, let me start with 4, For Christ is the head, excuse me, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Okay, so... If you look on your handout, look at the summary here. Um, Paul demonstrates that our forgiveness, that's the section we're on, forgiveness, is made possible due to his sufficiency and our resulting completion in Christ. God made us alive. He, God forgave us in Christ. He forgave us and he nullified the claims of the law against us, blotting out and blotting it out and nailing it to the cross. Okay, so I don't want to lose you. So we've got a few minutes. I want to I want to hit a very important shade point. Uh, there's an end of the law. But the law still prevails. Now, how is that possible? That's what I want to talk about. Okay. So, look at the note at the bottom of page three. Three ways the cross of Christ is the end of the law for believers, reflecting his sufficiency. And this is, part of this is by McLaren. Three ways the cross of Christ is the end of the law for believers and how it reflects his sufficiency. Okay, Christ's sufficiency. McLaren was an old-time scholar, and he said the end of the laws, the end of the laws, it's the end of the law's power and punishment. Now, and he also said it's the end of the ceremonial law. Then he said it's the end of the law's moral rule. Okay, we know that Christ paid the penalty and price for sin for believers. So the law has um, not power over us because Christ has fulfilled the law. And it's the end of the ceremonial law because the description I wrote, the, the law, the ceremonial law foreshadowed Christ and the law could not save. Christ fulfilled it. 
So that ceremonial law is no longer needed because it's not pointing people towards Christ in the future. Every aspect of the rituals, from the sacrifices to the items in the temple, to the um, Holy of Holies, uh, to the Ark of the Covenant, all of that foreshadowed Christ. And that he is, he's come. So that's been fulfilled. Now, the end of the law as moral rule. I'm going to say there's a qualified end here. The standard is now Christ. And Christ's standard is higher than the law. Uh, it's God's word. God's moral law, as in the Ten Commandments, what we're primarily talking about, don't lie, cheat, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't uh, kill, love God, love your brother, uh, God's moral laws in the Ten Commandments is now embodied in the New Covenant. The law, the law as written has now been, those principles have come across into the New Covenant. Uh, and now it's sometimes called the law of Christ or the law of love. And he even holds us, as I said before, uh, holds us accountable for our thoughts and attitudes. If I envy in my mind, that's, that's I'm, I'm breaking a commandment. I'm breaking the, the, uh, God's moral law. So the moral law that existed in the Ten Commandments now has been expanded, and now it exists in the New Testament and the New Covenant as God's righteous standards. So let us look at... Um, Want to look at uh, a quote here by MacArthur as he does a particular verse to kind of help explain this. In that verse, um, 10.4, I'll read it again. Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Okay. Now, Although the Greek word translated end can mean either fulfillment or termination. So he fulfilled it. You know, the, the end can mean fulfilling or it can mean doing away with. This is not a reference to Christ having perfectly fulfilled the law through his teaching, which he did. But this, in the context, this verse doesn't only teach that. Um, or it doesn't exclusively mean that he lived a sinful life and he fulfilled it. Uh, and I'm commenting on Romans 10.4, not in your handout, other than just in that text above the note there, right by the note. Instead, Paul in the second half of this verse shows when he says righteousness to everyone that believeth, Paul means that Christ, belief in Christ as Lord and Savior ends the sinner's futile quest for righteousness through his imperfect attempts to save himself by his efforts to obey the law. Um, Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is knowledge of sin. So we can't keep the law, but the law 
no one's going to be justified by the law because no one can keep the law. And the law can't help you keep the law. But the law helps us to have a knowledge of what sin is. And in that verse, context in Romans 10, verse 3 says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So MacArthur is saying not only is Christ fulfill the law and he's termination of the law, but in this context here where Paul is it's talking about my heart's desire in verse 1 is for, and my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them a record, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going back to establish their own righteousness through obeying the law, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The way to access faith and salvation is, and righteousness is by faith in Christ. So, Christ is the end of the law for those that now believe in Christ. Now, let's look at um, this quote a little more fully here where uh, McLaren that I quoted said that uh, Christ is the end of the cross of Christ is the end of the law's power and punishment end of the ceremonial law and end of the law's moral rule. Let's look at that just a little bit. He said that um, he, McLaren mentions three ways in which the cross is the end of um, the law. First, it is the end of the law's power of punishment. It's the end of the ceremonial law, and it's the end of the law's moral rule. This, he explains, does not mean that the Christian is free from the obligations of morality. And this is what, uh, I know this is semi-deep, but this is what he says. I'm going to make a point here, and it'll all come together. Just bear with me a couple of more minutes. He says, duty is now duty. Used to be people as their duty and their piety towards God was obey the law, the Jew. Now he says duty is now duty because our obligation is because we see the pattern of conduct and character of Christ. This is McLaren. He says our law is the perfect life and death of Christ who is at once, he's in the same time, the ideal of humanity, the ideal of humanity, and the reality of deity. The weakness of all the law is that it merely commands, but it has no power to get its commandments obeyed. But Christ puts his own power within us and his love in our hearts. And so we pass from under the dominion of an external commandment into the liberty of an inward spirit. He is to his followers both law and impulse. And by impulse, he's being the enabling energy. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us power to obey him and to be righteous like God and, and to imitate him in his character. 
he says, he came not to destroy, but fulfilled. So Ephesians 2.15, again, we read, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, for to make himself of, of two, one new man, the Jew and the Greek, a Jew and the, uh, um, and the Gentile, so making peace. He says, through his death, Christ abolished Old Testament ceremonial laws and feasts and sacrifice, which uniquely separated Jews from Gentiles. God's moral law, God's moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments and written on the hearts of all men, was not abolished, but subsumed. Now, I didn't know what that meant, so I looked it up. It means to be absorbed, embodied, combined in the new covenant because it reflects God's own holy nature. So it was moved from the Ten Commandments and absorbed into the New Testament. Now, you say, well, but the law, let's look at uh, and we'll look at uh, Galatians 3 in closing. Wherefore the law is our schoolmaster, 24 through 26. Galatians 3, 24 through 26. Wherefore the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under schoolmaster. We are uh, all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So, by the law is knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. Okay, so closing here. MacArthur says, the law is our tutor, which by showing our, our sins was escorting us to Christ. Believers, though, believers through faith in Christ have come of age as God's children. Thus, they're not under the tutelage of the law, although they're still ob obliged and obligated to obey God's holy and unchanging righteous standards, which are now given authority in the new covenant. So the law, and then your handout, the law is essential. It reveals man's sin and man's guilt and the need for a savior. So the law, the standards written in the Ten Commandments, people who are unsaved are still under those. And it shows that they're sinners and that they need Christ. But the law can't save them. The law can't do anything to help them. The law is not sufficient. But Christ is sufficient. So the law shows us that we need to be saved. And we are complete in Christ. Not complete in ourselves. So we have forgiveness of sins. Because he is fully God and fully man. And we have to close. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much.